Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here we'll explore the ultimate question how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show we have Mike Kelly, the member for Eden Monaro. Mike began his career fighting for the rights of injured workers and campaigning for those suffering from asbestos-related diseases in Sydney. In 1987, he joined the Army and had extensive military experience, serving in several international operational deployments, including Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Somalia, East Timor and Iraq. Mike is a leading expert on peace and stabilisation operations, post-conflict reconstruction and counter-insurgency, and he has a PhD in related fields, has published two books and numerous articles. Mike is passionate about renewable energy and the need to act on climate change. He's also a strong advocate for veterans and the interests of rural and regional Australia within the Labor Party and Parliament. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we start uh, with the discussion around Australia's humanitarian policy, I'd be very eager to hear more about your career to date. So if you could summarise how you got to the role that you're in now, that would be great. Mm. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a roller coaster ride, um, but I'm very grateful uh, for the experiences that I've had in, in my endeavours because it's, uh, it's, I think it's given me a perspective that, uh, that enables me, I think, to contribute to some of the, the issues that have been very prevalent in uh, contemporary life and in recent international affairs uh, and also some of the challenges we're facing domestically in, in dealing with security issues. So uh, in all the deployments I've had, it, it's given me the ability to determine what are generic issues that uh, you know really apply in whatever context you're in. So you know, having served in Somalia and, and Bosnia and Timor and, and Iraq, it's given me in a Middle East, just Asia Pacific, Africa, and Europe. Um, so um, I've, through that time, worked hard to really learn general principles of um, really what is at stake in uh, establishing um, stable environments. Um, my, my expertise kind of grew around counterinsurgency and stabilization operations, peace building. Um, and uh, in that time, too, uh, had the great opportunity to study and observe the nexus between security activities and aid and development 
and uh, and the activities of NGOs and how uh, security actors and agencies uh, have to work with with those humanitarian agencies and uh, how that should work and whether it's been effective or not and what is effective also in sustainable aid and development uh, and how that relates to helping establish a secure environment and in promoting uh, how a democratic culture and the institutions of democracy can be established. So, um, you know, it's also, I guess, uh, a lot of my time is spent on dealing with counterterrorism and those sorts of issues, but uh, it's all kind of closely related in terms of um, what are the things that give rise to terrorism, uh, give them traction within certain environments, and, and how do you neutralise uh, the grievances and issues that, that give rise to um, instability and uh, and terrorism and, and, and security uh, issues um, in both international contexts and how they play out domestically in Australia. So it's um, it's been great. I've um, had the opportunity in government to uh, attempt to deal with the answers to that and um, put forward the uh, proposal to establish the Australian Civil Military Centre. Uh, which deals with how you integrate civil military planning for all these complex environments. And uh, so now I'm serving on the uh, Parliamentary Joint Committee for Intelligence and Security and uh, dealing with, you know, that and broader range of issues such as, you know, these huge cyber threats, the interference uh, with our democratic processes by Russians and others, as we've seen play out internationally recently. Wow. Uh, that was really interesting, and I and I think something you mentioned there about the relationship between the military in a humanitarian response and NGOs is a really interesting one that we'll come back to later. Where I want to take the discussion now, though, uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the Australian Humanitarian Partnership. Um, and uh, accordingly, Australia's humanitarian policy. So, can I ask? Um, can I ask you to tell us about what our current humanitarian strategy entails, and share your views on whether it's a sufficient strategy? Yeah, this has been an evolving thing, and obviously, at a national level, there are always these attempts to balance national interests, uh, economic interests, with you know how proactive or, uh, or aggressive you get in relation to humanitarian causes. Um, I think we've gone backwards to some degree in the way things are being done at present because, um, you know, having the stand-aside agency of AusAid out there um, really building confidence around their involvement in communities and having, you know, the wherewithal and the staffing to uh, develop a proper understanding of cultural contexts and, uh, and delivering and tailoring aid and development was a, a big factor in our humanitarian objectives. And uh, and because you could get feedback through Auslead into DFAT about, you know, issues that were going on on the ground and, and how we might address them effectively, meshing that sort of political and humanitarian uh, expertise and, and observations. Um, so now, uh, not only have we seen a, a loss of capacity in that respect by crashing what was I said into DFAT and losing a lot of staff in the process. Um, but in addition, we've had a huge reduction in our foreign aid budget and efforts. So um, that has really, you know, been counterproductive in relation to even the current government's own objectives in trying to deal with the asylum seeker refugee issue. Um, one of the best ways to deal with that, of course, is to try and deal with problems at source that, you know, generate um, refugees and people seeking asylum. Um, but 
of course, uh, you know, you have huge challenges in how you deal with uh, humanitarian issues that are emerging in China, for example, and you've seen a lot of reporting about how um, the Uyghurs are being dealt with there and concerns about these uh, uh, facilities and camps that are being set up uh, and, uh, and how you broach that with the Chinese and, and make that effective. Uh, at the same time as all these competing interests were pressure from the business community to not rock the boat with China, et cetera. So um, I, you know, I think uh, DFAT has, has got a lot of sound professionals who do their best, um, but what I've found is uh, over the time working with them, uh, they often really depend on uh, agencies and individuals who have experience on the ground to come up with um, you know, the substance of, of how they might deal with these things. But um, I, I don't believe we're being as effective as we could be at the present time with the way things are structured right now. Um, and, it, and it is a, a horses for courses thing, you know, dealing with each context takes a different approach and you need to be working closely with international partners harmoniously on that. And I think internationally at the moment, harmony amongst um, like-minded nations has been a bit hard to achieve given uh, the sorts of interests that are involved and uh, the attitudes of the current US administration and, uh, and how also international um, espionage is working in that respect as well. Uh, just in the last few weeks, there have been hearings in the, uh, the US and the Senate Intelligence Committee process that have revealed how uh, the Russians have been very aggressive in not only trying to undermine the EU and NATO and, and the US, but also just generally to discredit liberal democracy. And so, um, you know, they've really been incredibly active in investing heavily in uh, these uh, social media campaigns and other campaigns to uh, effectively undermine attitudes to humanitarian issues um, and, and just discredit you know, liberal democracy in general. So it's a challenging environment to be trying to push humanitarian causes at the moment. Sounds incredibly challenging. I think a point that you made there that under AusAid, perhaps our humanitarian response was less reliant upon NGOs. And now since we dissolved AusAid, um, our humanitarian responses really have to leverage the existing networks and capabilities of NGOs, um, which is quite central to the remit of the Australian Humanitarian Partnership. Have I understood that correctly? And what's the danger of being overly reliant on the NGO sector? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of in line with the general philosophy of the government to pretty much outsource as much as they possibly can. And, you know, there's a limit to which you can privatise, you know, government um, administration and processes and expertise uh, because there is an issue of uh, proper accountability and oversight and the process by which you, you come to determine the right approach. And I've seen this extensively over my time in the field. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we deployed to Somalia in the first place was um, uh, there were quite a number of NGOs working there and the, the situation was portrayed as just a famine situation when in reality it was largely a civil war that was causing uh, those uh, situations in terms of famine and starvation. And, um, and, you know, the NGO community called out initially for military intervention, but when we arrived there we realised that... Um, uh, unwittingly, the NGOs had kind of become part of the problem. Um, because of the threat environment, they'd been arming themselves heavily and uh, 
I remember seeing a, a Miss Ensemble Frontier vehicle with a, a uh, crucive weapon mounted on the roof and uh, you know, they had armed guards in their compounds. And, and at one point, the ICRC was the largest armed organisation in Somalia. And they all learned lessons out of that. But what that was effectively doing was fueling the arms market. And those, a lot of those um, guards would then attack the compounds at night after guarding them during the day. Um, and, uh, you know, it was effectively causing more problems in the environment. So um, there's a need. And also NGOs uh, are not one, you know, sort of amorphous organisation that's hierarchical that operates to a set of well-developed and coherent policies. You can, you can deal with organisations like the ICRC who do have very evolved approaches to this and uh, and have learned lessons over a long period of time about how you operate environments and uh, and how you deal with um, various actors, state and non-state, um, and harmonise that with um, international governments and actors and agencies. Uh, but you do come across other NGOs at times who you know have completely the opposite uh, types of frameworks and standards, and um, you know will either be getting into trouble or you know engaging in activities that actually um, are unacceptable or um, or doing things that aren't sustainable and are not part of a coherent strategy um, to to achieve the outcomes that we're all looking for, the holistic end state. So uh, it's not a uh, an easy uh, matrix to, to, to summarise the NGO world. It's, it's full of very different dynamics and actors. And one example I hit in, in uh, Bosnia was the... Um, Situation where you had something like 400 NGOs working on the uh, the Bosnian Muslim side of the line, and only four working on the Serbian side of the line, and uh, you know there were Serbian women and children just as much in need, you know, on that side of the line in that conflict, um, without judging the overall responsibility for what was going on. But a lot of NGOs would say to me there that they didn't want to be photographed with delivering, you know, aid to Serbians. Um, that that would affect their donor dynamic. So we have to understand the sorts of dynamics that are at work in the NGO world, and uh, and understand that um, there's there's a need to be very careful about accountability, um, performance indicators, and uh, and also the policy coordination uh, and effectiveness of what's being done. Um, and that's I think quite a bit of a missing piece. Uh, in these days. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I think it begs the question for me, can an NGO ever be apolitical? Mm, that's that's a good question. And, and certainly, you know, some of them have also been fronts for other things before. Uh, um, we actually first came across this in Somalia where we ended up having a, an actual shootout with the what was called there the Islamic Relief uh, Organisation or Agency. And which was, uh, we found out later, a front for Al-Qaeda. And uh, similarly in Bosnia, uh, you had similar sorts of problems. So, you know, there's a need to uh, be careful about who you're dealing with and get to the bottom of who they are in the first place. Um, but uh, that's why I was so keen to get the Australian Civil Military Centre up and running, because uh, there's a need uh, to set up a formal process of planning around that, of dealing with uh, uh, other humanitarian and government agencies and harmonising and forming a, uh, a clear understanding of what actual end state it is that you're looking for and how each actor could contribute to delivering that, that end state. 
So that's a really interesting point for us to get into. So was part of the impetus for setting up the Australian Civil Military Centre the fact that NGOs are increasingly having to get into the territory of crisis response and kind of are in the same zones as military and it is increasingly hard to delineate between their roles? Yeah, I think the problem and the challenge for NGOs uh, is that they were moving into higher and higher threat environments where the uh, aggressive warring actors were not respecting, you know, their neutrality um, and uh, not respecting them in terms of uh, normal standards of, you know, international humanitarian law that you shouldn't be attacking uh, NGOs and people delivering humanitarian relief. They're actually starting to become particular targets of these organisations uh, and actors. And uh, so they were trying to work out how to come to grips with this higher threat environment and uh, realising that, in effect, by, in some circumstances, the objectives in these internal conflicts particularly is that they were trying to wipe out, you know, whole, you know, groups or ethnic groups that were um, uh, in contest over resources or, or cultural identity and control of an environment. So delivering aid to a particular clan in Somalia, for example, was contrary to the objectives of another clan and that they, they wanted to completely wipe out that clan. So in effect, their perception was that these humanitarian actors are, are actually um, enemies in the conflict itself. So this was posing huge challenges. And then you have the military coming in and the military wanting to do things like, you know, also provide medical and humanitarian support following you know traditional principles of building a, a relationship and winning hearts and minds with the community but tripping over each other's toes you know like a military medical unit might turn up to a village and want to vaccinate kids and find that you know an NGO was there a couple of days before doing the same thing uh, and then the NGOs not wanting to be seen to be working too closely with the military because fearing that that would compromise them and uh, and their neutrality principles so working out you know, a, a modus operandi for, for NGOs and the military to work together in those environments was a big challenge. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you make reference to tripping over each other's toes and it's something we hear a lot when we talk about humanitarian responses um, and certainly something I saw a lot when I was working in the Pacific that often there are so many NGOs with good intentions wanting to respond but the coordination of that response has been lacking, which is what led to the development of the UN cluster system. Mm -hmm. um, in your view, has that cluster system worked? Are we coordinating NGOs better or is there more work to be done? Yeah, I think it's improved a lot over time as we've learned a lot and I was fortunate to be involved in a lot of that process um, with uh, particularly the uh, challenges of peacekeeping process that uh, the Fokker-Bernadot Academy in Sweden had the lead on, um, particularly Annika Hilding Norberg there, pulled a lot of that together and we did a lot of work with the secretariats um, to particularly uh, even get the UN to understand that its stovepipes were a really big problem in dealing with these issues as well, that they needed to come up with integrated planning processes um, involving all of their arms and agencies, um, let alone, you know, sort of how we get you know, the other rest of the international community to do it. And they started making quite good progress on that. But it was um, understanding some, some key elements to that and how you establish public security and how you do transitions and how that 
relates to each other and how you manage those transitions. So you could take a rough model that you might be going into a, a situation of high conflict, high threat, where civilians just can't be present. And so the military needs to be able to come in, uh, establish security, but also to, to deal with basic um, administrative and, uh, and humanitarian issues. And then when they create a reasonably permissive environment, start bringing in those civilian actors and agencies, perhaps providing them with security or security arrangements. Uh, and then as you work forward, starting to identify local actors and, um, and, uh, and, and context that you can start to grow capacity in as well, because ultimately this was another issue you have with, um, with NGOs and aid and development at times. The whole point of these exercises are to make, is to make yourself redundant. And unless you're constructing your whole approach to these operations or activities with that goal in mind, uh, in the end, what you've left behind is going to be either dependency or unsustainability. So things that, you know, they just won't be able to be maintained or that aren't meshed in with what is going to be a local economic dynamic and, and how you establish good governance in all of that is probably the key piece, the rule of law aspect. So um, I, I began to realise that you had to really focus on that good governance stuff before you really addressed a lot of other things. So, you know, in studying how this works, I looked at Africa, for example, and it was a long time there where perhaps 87 cents in every dollar of aid was ending up in Swiss bank accounts. And um, so corruption and accountability and setting up good administrative processes uh, in these environments is probably the most important thing that we can contribute to the successful delivery of aid and development in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So I think we've talked quite a lot about Australia's offshore humanitarian responses there and some of the challenges that we face around the military NGO nexus. I think our offshore humanitarian response is inextricably linked to our onshore humanitarian processes and that's been in the news a lot this week um, uh, with particularly noteworthy cases of the way we have processed onshore um, humanitarian refugees so in your view what is the relationship between our onshore and offshore humanitarian policies yeah look it's very hard to make arguments about uh, what humanitarian standards should be elsewhere when you're not upholding them yourself and i think it's been a real stain on our nation uh, the way we have treated people in manas and nauru uh, the original intention of that facility was it was just going to be a rapid processing facility that people would be dealt with quickly and moved on and instead they've become this you know years and endless years of of going nowhere with people being treated appallingly in reality um, and that's just not good enough I've had the opportunity to speak personally with people in that situation through activists who've been able to hook me up um, through um, uh, video phone hookup and uh, I just feel that um, we're losing ground in terms of our moral authority. Um, moral authority is one of the key weapons you have at your disposal in international influence. And uh, and we've undervalued that, I think, in recent years. You know, we always talk about the national interest, but the national interest is best served when you have the moral high ground and you've established your moral authority. 
and we were undermining that by the way we went into the Iraq war and, you know, other issues since then. But for Australia, this whole um, asylum seeker process is fundamentally flawed. I mean, the issue for me, having lived through, you know, the Children Overboard saga and all the rest of it, is that um, we need to tackle the problem at source. Um, certainly, I think we could all agree that we don't want people to be climbing on um, dangerous boats where they're also subject to you know, piracy and the rest of it uh, and the depredations of, um, of people smugglers. But that means you have to seriously look at how your offshore processing regime works. Um, wherever a refugee lands, we should have systems in place that rapidly and effectively process them at their first point of landing. And that was the direction that, that finally Labor's policy was going in in 2015 at the national conference we had there. Up until then, I wasn't happy with any side of politics in this space. Um, but the idea should be focus on working with Indonesia and perhaps Malaysia on uh, establishing uh, decent facilities where and working in conjunction with UNHCR where uh, a person knows they can go straight to those locations, be properly looked after, fed, watered, medical treatment and then rapid processing. And part of our strategy there was to lift our humanitarian intake to encourage you know, others to say, look, you know, Australia's doing its bit. You guys chip in and we deal with this issue. Um, and that way you would have eliminated the entire issue of people needing to climb on a boat in the first place. Um, so, you know, looking at the problem at source is really the issue here, and I haven't seen any real progress on that. Um, we're still dealing with the and effectively the symptoms here are not the cause. Um, you know, it's all about boats on the water and we share information about that when it suits politically. Um, but in reality, um, those boats are still out there and we haven't stopped the problem at source. Yes, it's a lot to take in. I, I think the point that you made there that we've been undermining our moral high ground for a long time is, is a really interesting one and that has had some very serious geopolitical implications for us, not least with our Pacific Island neighbours. Um, but you said that that f you saw that in our Iraq response as well. Um, so I was keen to understand that a little bit better. Can you uh, I imagine it's quite a hard thing to kind of simplify into a brief conversation, but can you talk about what your first impressions were of Australia's response in Iraq? Yeah, and I'm going back now to, you know, 2003 uh, and that situation because, I mean, everything else that's happened since then is kind of related to that, the knock-on effect, um, the fact that we broke something and haven't been able to fix it too well. But uh, the biggest problem, it, it's quite simple in some ways. Uh, in my military career, I'd always gone somewhere, deployed somewhere on the basis of, you know, an invitation to be there or a Security Council resolution uh, that covered it, that provided the authority, and uh, there were clear and, and obvious uh, humanitarian or other issues involved. Um, when we went into Iraq, I think we all felt pretty uncomfortable that we were doing this without the cover of a, a Security Council resolution, and that there were serious question marks over the premise, you know, of the weapons of mass destruction. And so, you know, just going in there... Uh, without that kind of international consensus and, uh, and an approval of what you're doing, sending a signal to other countries, I think it gave Russia the confidence to move in and do what it did in the Crimea, etc. You know, um, it was, a, it was a, a breach of 
of the international order, in, if you like, in terms of you know what all of our focus, and particularly for a, a, you know, a, a country of our size and, and uh, vulnerabilities, we, our interest is, is, is definitely in promoting a robust international order operating within a rules-based regime. So moving into Iraq in the way we did undermined that and then getting in there, um, I went in there with members of our Iraq survey group who were going to go looking for the weapons of mass destruction and and then when I hooked up with them a little bit later in Iraq, uh, they told me clearly that there weren't any and that weren't, they weren't going to be finding any. So the, the premise was false in the first place and we all know now about how the intelligence was... Um, you know, pushed into the direction of, you know, um, delivering on uh, political objectives without being um, rigorous and, and correct. <laughs> so um, it, it led to a lot of distortions. And then once we got in there, the whole process was handled very badly. Um, you know, I, I was asked to go there because of my background in uh, stabilisation and, and uh and, and nation building and post-conflict reconstruction, as well as counterinsurgency. And Absolutely every aspect of the approach uh, in those early days was completely wrong. I remember going to Washington in February of 2003 and they hadn't even started really talking about that whole stabilisation process uh, in Iraq. In other words, what are you going to do when you win the conventional military fight? And they put years worth of study and work into that combat manoeuvre phase stuff, but zero into, well, how do we actually move on and win this thing in terms of what we, you know, create and leave behind. And, uh, but we put forward uh, a lot of uh, issues uh, that, uh, that from our experience and the, the problem was that that was completely ignored by Donald Rumsfeld, um, who felt that to do what we were suggesting would require too much resource and too many troops for too long. And in reality, they created a dynamic that meant they had to bring in thousands more troops and cost billions more dollars and um, cause thousands of more casualties at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, I, I sat down with a British colleague and we put forward a plan for transition, working on that whole political uh, piece and, uh, and what would be sustainable in terms of um, the acceptance of you being there in the first place and how you maintained, you know, that support and goodwill. And it was all completely ignored. So very frustrating time because I lost a lot of friends and colleagues in Iraq and you know in a military context you always understand it except there's going to be some casualties you hope for none but you're if you're going to have casualties you want to make sure that at least you know it's in a good cause and it's it's for achieving you know a result and progress but I saw a lot of people lose their lives uh, over there uh, in a bad cause that, you know, was being badly managed. So it was, you know, quite distressing from that point of view. And I think that's the thing that's so easy to forget when we're having these debates about humanitarian policy and humanitarian response is that when we get these things wrong, it's not just that we got it wrong, it's that it's costing often tens of thousands of lives. And I think that's a really hard thing to conceptualise. It is. And, you know, one of the dangers we have now in this sort of populist political dynamic that's going on internationally is it's it's actually counterproductive. You know, you're you're not serving the interests and causes of uh, of, of your own security. And a, a perfect example of that is this debate 
we've been having about the government's revocation of citizenship laws, and it comes back to this Iraq situation. So um, I'm really bitterly opposed to it because it doesn't make Australians safe. It makes them less safe. You can see how in a bar people might say, yeah, these buggers don't deserve citizenship, you know, bugger them, you know. However, you know, I, I, I always give one example that illustrates how stupid this is. So in 1995, Sudan had in their custody uh, a fellow who they wanted to hand over to the Saudi Arabians uh, who had revoked this guy's citizenship and refused to take him back. So Sudanese wondered what to do and eventually just let this guy go off to Afghanistan. Uh, that bloke's name was Osama bin Laden. And uh, from 1995, there were the bombing attacks on the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi, the attack on the USS Cole, 9-11, which led to the war in uh, Afghanistan, which led to the war in Iraq. Literally hundreds of thousands dead over that time, all because one bloke's citizenship was revoked. And, and this is the space we're in now having these arguments with the government over this. And, um, you know, the, we have individuals like Prakash who are having this discussion now um, our and we've got these Australians sitting in our hall, the camp in Syria. The poor old Kurds are being forced to handle all this when we should be taking responsibility for people uh, who are Australian citizens in making sure that they're dealt with from a, a justice point of view and that we um, uh, also look at some of the humanitarian issues around other individuals who have been caught up in that. But in particular, they're not in a secure facility. They could well and truly end up out there causing havoc for Australians. And the, the, the key statistic here is that since 2001, more than 100 Australians have been killed in overseas terrorist activities, you know, in, Bar in Barcelona, London, New York, uh, Sri Lanka and Bali. And uh, so the biggest risk for Australians is that overseas international terrorist threat. And uh, so our contribution to the global war on terror, if you like, should be on neutralising those people who are actually, you know, our citizens and having a effective uh, countering violent extremism de-radicalisation process back here in Australia as well. And so that's where there's been an underinvestment in understanding those things and working with communities here. So, you know, these situations like Iraq, you know, have been dealt with in a way that's met uh, a, a, a process or been the result of a process of politics that's built around this this populism and uh, and neoconservative attitudes that have now blossomed internationally into, you know, fairly extreme right-wing approaches to things, um, which is leading the world down the opposite path to which we should be going. Yeah, wow. So, so in all of these um, humanitarian... Uh, responses that Australia has been involved with over, say, the last decade or two. Is there anything that Australia has developed that has become our unique value add? Like, is there anything that we're really good at in a humanitarian response that other countries aren't? Yeah, if you leave aside failures of governments, um, I, I think the strength of Australia in these fields has been uh, the quality of the individuals that we've had involved uh, and I think it's very helpful coming from our multicultural background that I've noticed that Australians have a big head start, for example, on, on Americans uh, in the field in that more open to understanding cultural context and to being you know, empathetic. 
uh, with individuals and, and respecting those cultural differences and then factoring them into what you do. Um, whenever I went anywhere, my first step was to deeply read and absorb as much as I possibly could about that cultural context and understand it deeply because what you're looking for in the field are those, those hooks, those cultural hooks that you will hang your activities off to make sure that they're effective and that um, because a lot of the time what you're doing there, it's a bit like a, <clears throat> a transplant. You don't want the organ to be rejected, you know, and so you need to work things so that the graft will take. And, uh, and Australians are very good, I think, or generally, you know, very good at, at being open to understanding those things, being empathetic and, uh, and working well in different cultural contexts. I think that's been a particular strength. And I think the other thing is uh, adaptability and flexibility in those environments. Um, quite often I've seen others come to a place with a doctrinaire approach um, or this is the way we did it, for example, in Kosovo, so we're going to do it this way, you know, in Timor. Um, you know, that sort of paradigm paralysis is, uh, is a bit more prominent in um, others and a bit of arrogance, a bit of cultural arrogance they bring with them. You know, I've seen that in some Europeans and, and, uh, and Americans at times. We're not immune to that, but I just feel that the sorts of individuals that we usually send into these environments, they're... Uh, they have a bit of a head start on some colleagues in that respect. Yeah, that's that's actually really nice to hear that, I think, that the multiculturalism that I think that we do foster in Australia is embodied in our offshore responses. I, I, I think that's a really nice thing to hear. Yeah, it's not perfect, but, you know, I think we, as I say, we're a bit better at it. Yeah, Okay, so before we finish, there's one other topic um, I wanted to cover with you. And I think what we've discussed in this interview is the alignment between our onshore and offshore approaches. And I think another area where that manifests is around democracy, freedom of the press and corruption. And I've seen, especially in recent years, our offshore aid efforts are increasingly focused around democracy and governance building. How does that play out when we're struggling with it here in Australia? Yeah, there's a couple of things there. One, it comes back to the battle for moral authority. Um, so we need to be coming to places with as clean hands as we can and establish a reputation for that so that people reach out to us, you know, and, and take us credibly and listen to us. But also one thing I learned in all these deployments and in working in this area, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan as well, um, is that... Uh, Democracy is not just about uh, legislation or elections, you know, they're nice, but uh, they're kind of superficial in a way. I, I really learned deeply that uh, democracy was about a culture of democracy. Um, you really need to establish the, have people imbibe culturally what are the attitudes that, that create a good democracy. You know, like if you took our parliament, for example, it'd be very easy to bring that place to a shuddering halt if people didn't have a basic certain level of, of, of moral attitudes to how you approach the way you do things in that building. Um, so, you know, you need to build that culture and there's a couple of aspects to that. One is how you foster civil society, you know, and their roles in um, observing and protecting and calling out humanitarian issues and, and their freedom to do that. Uh, and then uh, having that good governance process being worked on assiduously so 
you need to and in Iraq we actually came up with a concept which was I think a good one but it just wasn't carried out effectively um, was that we would the plan was to take every department of government and graduate them to self-administration and they had to move through certain criteria to get there and they and and that was going to be subject to a regime of accountability so that you would have inspe an inspector general regime with um, in, in various people attached to departments to play independent roles in monitoring corruption activity because the single biggest issue, for example, that Afghanistan was facing is corruption. And corruption is a key factor even in, you know, some of the environments in the Pacific, the way, um, you know, you have uh, outside actors distorting things in New Guinea with, um, you know, timber operators from Malaysia, et cetera, all these sorts of things are really big factors in undermining um, uh, humanitarian issues and and and, uh, and democracy as a whole. So um, you need to really focus on that and how you do it and how you provide performance, key performance indicators and, um, and accountability and monitoring of, of particularly where the money goes. Um, and there's some good organisations like um, Palantir that actually can provide you with some technical means to do that as well. But you need to be, you know, taking out people and, training them up as civil servants, you know, really ground-up stuff. But you also need to ensure those basic freedoms and, you know, just being involved in the Intelligence Security Committee process now looking at this press freedom issue. And I think Australians quite rightly have been concerned about the way this is being handled. And, frankly, uh, it's unnecessary. Effectively, the, the, there's an issue that goes back to how the agencies are dealing with their classified material in the first place. It shouldn't be escaping from their building, but also in how documents are being classified. There's some stuff in there that hasn't deserved the classification um, that they're being given. And, you know, you, you take this instance over the uh, allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan. Um, it's hard to see what the national security aspects of that are. And you've got already the bloke who's admitted being the one who's passed that information to the media already, you know, confessing that. So what was the point of the, the raid on the journalists in that respect? And why was that material classified the way it was? So in the UK, for example, they don't handle things like this. Or in the US, frankly, you know, the journalism and the freedom of the press is considered like a fundamental aspect of, of their democracies over there, even in, you know, a Trump administration. Um, and there are, of course, constitutional guarantees there. So... Um, you know, we've had this situation where in the UK they have this denotice system that they've had since 1912 where you just sit down with media organisations and you agree on a list of things that are really important for national security and how then you might deal with them if a, if a media organisation receives information about it. And that denotice system has worked extremely well. It's evolved to keep up with changing security challenges and circumstances we had it here in Australia too for quite a while, but it, it lapsed and became moribund, um, you know, about the 1980s really. And Rob McClellan, the former uh, Labor Attorney General when we were last in government, began the process of trying to resuscitate it, but uh, didn't get very far. So there are processes you can put in place to deal with these issues. But what we're seeing now is this heavy-handed, over-the-top stuff going on that has raised a lot of concerns uh, domestically. But you know, free media, freedom of the press is one of those essential pillars of, uh, of a democracy. Definitely. Yeah. 
And it seems like another step that we need to reclaim in order to reclaim some of the moral high ground that we've spoken about. Um, this has been so insightful, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries. It's been fun.